This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to cutting through all the confusing marketing BS so you can actually understand how to take action and change your business today. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we're going to talk about translating your brand into compelling sales stories. And we say it all the time that your brand is the foundation for all marketing and communications. And this is no different when you're constructing sales stories to convince a retailer or distributor or a B2B client to choose you or give you shelf space or stock you or promote you. But because the sales story is so highly nuanced by who you are actually selling to, we're actually going to switch this up a little bit and take a slightly different approach than usual and actually break down four different types of sales stories and what you need to consider in each. But before we jump in and do that, we often, like you know, take a minute to define what we're talking about. So sales stories really specifically are the pitch in some sort of formal or informal presentation, depending on your audience, that you're making to a buyer to get them to choose you. And Anne just outlined various situations where these occur, and they can take on many different forms depending on who the buyer is. And we'll get into that more with the episode, but we feel like we just want to ground everybody so that we all understand what we're talking about when we say sales stories. Yep, that's great grounding. All right, so let's jump into translating your brand into compelling sales stories. So the first sales story we're going to talk about is securing space on the shelf or on the floor of a retailer. And for this sales story, you need to consider two things. You need to consider, first, your consumer as a shopper, and then you need to consider the needs of the retailer. All right, so in the product world, you spend, or you should spend, if you're listening to this podcast regularly, a lot of time developing your consumer profile. But there is a new filter in your sales stories that you absolutely have to consider, and that is the translation of your consumer into a customer. So usually we talk about consumer and customer being those being interchangeable, but we want to get very specific on actually in this context, there are two different profiles that you need to consider. So whether it's brick and mortar store, an online store, or through a sales rep, these retailers' number one concern is offering products and services their customer will uniquely come to them for and buy. So these are people coming into the store, people shopping online. That's their customer. So it's essential that your sales stories represent your brand in a way that promotes why you're a good bet from a consumer and a customer standpoint. So as you're defining your consumer, we've talked to you about defining them both in a demographic and a psychographic way. And there's a podcast episode we actually just did several weeks ago about this. It's with Jennifer Canopel from NASCAR. So that's a really good one to listen to to, in order to understand both the demographic and the psychographic profile in more detail. But a big part of the psychographic profile is your consumer's shopping behavior. For example, are they a list maker? Are they a browser? Are they a replenisher? Meaning, do they get the same thing when that when it's gone or worn out? Do they do online research and order there? I mean, there's just so many ways to shop. And actually, the act of shopping can change your typical consumer behavior depending on what has happened to be going on in that environment. For example, if your your consumer happens to be more of a customer that goes and buys something when they're just trying to replenish it, but they see something on the store shelf that's a little bit interesting, that might get their attention and they might decide, hey, 
I might try to consider that. So it can flex too, depending on what's available in the context around them. And actually, I'll jump in and give a tight example here from oh. my experience working on laundry detergent on the agency side. And that is really specifically, this one has always stuck with me. So we would have consumers say that they were Tide loyalists. And mm-hmm. then we would go shopping with them and they would pick up the Pyrex because it was the cheapest on the end cap option and not even realize that they had just told us that they were Tide loyalists. So that's the example of being different when you're a consumer versus a customer or shopper. Yeah, I mean, that happens all the time, too, when we did consumer research. They say, oh, I only use Tide, and there's, like, five different laundry detergents. Oh, you mean, <laughs> but I only use this one for, like, socks, and I use this one, but I use Tide most of the time. So, yes, that's a very <laughs> excellent point. And, th- and that really goes to the next point, that there's also behaviors when shopping. So your consumer may be a ingredient or product description reader. They like to read all those labels. They may be a new product junkie. They might like to comparison shop on prices. They may be couponers. There might be those who are swayed by power claims. You really, really need to consider what influences your consumer's shopping behavior. This is totally key. And it, it is critical to dimensionalize this shopping style behavior of your target consumer because that is what is going to shape or how you position your story to make the most compelling case as to why a retail shopper will want you. And really to make the case that your shopper or their shopper, and your consumer are actually one in the same person, okay? So for example, I'll give my example now. When I was uh, going to be a new mom, which was quite a bit of time ago, so that was like, you know, almost approaching 18 years now, um, I was doing a ton of research before choosing anything. And it took me actually three tries walking into Babies or Us before I was even able to start a registry because it was just so overwhelming about what I should buy, how much I needed everything, do I really need all this stuff? The only thing that actually saved me was a preferred products list, if you will, from other moms. And because that influencers didn't really exist that much when I was mm-hmm. um, my new mom, that was actually real moms that I actually knew. But right now, you know, influencer moms are also really, really important in um in that consideration of building those lists. But knowing how I felt when I was becoming a new mom, you better believe that if I was launching a product for new moms, my sales story would be focused, hyper-focused on how I'm getting extensive endorsements from new moms everywhere, which is going to make me an easy choice for that overwhelmed new mom. So you really need to consider that shopping behavior in the context of your consumer and what is going on with them. Yeah, and I have to echo, I mean, even though influencers were around when I became a mom, I still went and got everybody's favorite product from everyone I knew. Oh, yeah. And then made my list that way. So I think that happens all the time. All right. So in addition, we've talked a lot already about the shopper and what happens when they're, you know, actually shopping and buying things. But the other thing you need to consider outside of the end consumer is the retailer's needs. And so I'll give you an example of this. So for Walmart, and really it's all retailers, they want SKUs that no other retailer has, hoping that people will come specifically to their store for that. And so what you're looking to do is, can you offer them first that unique SKU? And then because of the way that Walmart works, they expect something to turn really quickly. So they want to know what is your repeat rate for consumers? Will their shopping behavior support that rapid repeat? 
Pete rate. Say that three times fast, especially versus other products in the same category. And so they'll, they're going to want data as part of your sales story that very specifically shows them that you understand their business model and that you can deliver on what they're looking for. And I can tell you from working in packaging for many years, mm-hmm. we ran into this all of the time where, you know, we would have different SKUs of diapers, for example, for Walmart versus for Target, the designs would be different, you Mm -hmm. know, all of that kind of stuff. And so it definitely is, it can be as simple as a packaging change, which to the mom reference can sometimes drive moms crazy because the the diapers all look different when you get them in your house. But from a retailer point of view, they want something that is very unique to them that then also follows their business model and their expectations. And then a really innovative, cool example that Anne and I both love is um, in talking about Sarah Blakely, who is the inventor of Spanx. So she wanted to get her product out there. It was brand new. It's extremely hard, obviously, to get shelf space in any of these stores as a brand new product with none of the proof points that we were talking about before. So she would go and do in-store demos, and she'd pay her friends to come in and ask about the product and create kind of a crowd while she got the attention of other shoppers who would come over and then kind of create that buzz because she knew that the department stores were looking for whether her product would not only sell, but then also attract other shoppers and, again, have enough of a buzz for people to want to come back and buy them again, refer their friends, all of those different things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good story because it totally emphasizes the importance of really knowing what the retailer is looking for. And then even if you have to kind of contrive it and create it in order Mm -hmm. to first generate that traction, you sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. But you first have to start with, okay, what is the shopping behavior? She knew that those consumers and those shoppers were going to do that um, because that's how people flock kind of in department stores. Like, hey, what's going on? What's going on here? And then she knew that that would get the attention. So think about those two things. That's really critically important. Yeah, I think that's so true. All right. So our second sales story is selling services and products B2B. Yes. So again, I think it's worth mentioning that we're now switching gears a little bit, right? So as Anne set up at the beginning, we're not doing four steps here. We're doing four different situations. So in this case, we're talking again about selling those services and products B2B. And here, your sales story for that situation should focus on two things, your credibility and your reputation, and then how you're going to impact your clients' lives for the better. And most people limit their credibility and reputation to things like client roster, testimonials, expertise. And this is definitely a considering factor for most clients, but it really isn't sufficient. And it definitely isn't sufficient when you think about all the easy ways people can find you today, especially digitally. So most companies will Google any company that they're vetting, which means you absolutely better have content out there that's discoverable. Our very first website episode was four monumental websites site mistakes Uh for this very reason, very timely topic. So if you need help there, go and look at that one. But we're also talking about things like branded content, influencer content, PR, white papers, appearances at events, anything that you can show up and show up well and show that you're an expert in the space and give them incentive to want to come and fill in the blank, meet you, work with you, all of those types of things. And then 
Um, overall, you need to be showing up in your industry regularly and with authority. So to the point of people being able to find you, that's exactly what I mean here. But the regularity of it is also hugely important. So if you show up online and you have you know, a podcast from five years ago and a speaking engagement from 15 years ago, and that's kind of the last people have heard from you, that actually does the opposite of building credibility and making people want to come back. What they're immediately going to think is, well, what the heck happened to this person? Mm -hmm. And no matter how good the content is, I have to say, I doubt that it's still relevant or as relevant as it could be if you were regularly speaking and putting things out there, or, you know, doing white papers, all of that sort of thing to continue to reinforce your credibility and your reputation to those potential clients. And this this also really does help with word of mouth because even if those people that are looking you up don't need you right now, you're top of mind, they can tell a friend when they hear something about that subject or, you know, your existing clients might find it easier to refer other people to you because they can easily tell them what to go and look at. And it becomes more of that positive um, reinforcement because it's not messaging coming specifically from you, but it's coming through other people. Yeah, I, I, those are all really good points because your credibility and reputation almost has to be always on, right? Yes, and exactly. so it, it, it's really important to be consistently showing up in these places that matter, especially if you're the type of service um, or product that people are only going to buy one of. Absolutely. Like, you know, for us, like, people only hire one marketing agency. So if we're not it, somebody else is it, we have to wait for the cycle to come back around and we need to go and we need to find other clients. So it's extremely important that you're building your reputation there so you have all these things to point to when it's your turn to be up to bat, okay? And then the second, like we said, was how are you going to impact your clients' lives for the better? This is also a part of being differentiated because 90% of decisions are emotional. This includes people decisions. We talk about it a lot on the product side, but this is also people decisions too. So if you can show how you're going to perform and how that will deliver an emotional benefit that will make your clients' lives better, you're going to show up very strongly and you're going to absolutely differentiate yourself from competition. All right. But this is more than just providing good service or a guarantee. <laughs> like These are table stakes. We say this all the time. You got to assume everybody provides some level of good service or some everybody provides some level of guarantee. That isn't going to be what differentiates you. You need to go deeper and really uncover that angst your client is having and how specifically you're going to solve for it. And then how that, and describe that, how that's going to make their life better. So how are you going to actually improve their life? So for example, maybe it is that your client has a really lean organization and lacks the capability to provide. This is a very kind of it's typical situation that happens all the time. That's why people hire external agencies, right? You could offer, as part of a proposal, a series of training or offer hours so you can build capability within their organization. That's a way of being able to show value above and beyond just performing the work that they're asking you for. What this does is it helps you build a relationship. That relationship then leads to recommendations. It can lead to introductions and makes you feel more essential. That is how you actually make yourself indispensable. A lot of agencies or businesses will try to instill job security by withholding all of that information so they can make themselves feel more important. What happens is that just ends up commoditizing your business, mm -hmm. and then it goes back to, well, who's going to provide me better pricing for all these things that I'm going to get, all right? So assume that everybody actually does pretty good work. Assume that everybody's going to give some level of good service. Assume that somebody's going to, you know, everybody's going to give some level of guarantee 
you need to differentiate in a much better way and you need to differentiate in a way that's going to demonstrate that you're going to make your clients' lives better. Yeah, and I think we can't emphasize this point enough because a lot of people do give lip service like to the fact of we have your best interest at heart and we're going to do, you know, the best for you and your business and all of that kind of stuff. But until people really can see that happen for them or get those referrals from other people that they trust, you don't necessarily buy into it, right? It's a table stake, mm-hmm. but it's also sometimes like a bait and switch type of situation. And I'll give an anecdote just as Anne was talking, this this popped into my head. So as a business, we concentrate on providing immediate impact, right? We do the same thing with this podcast. We want people to be able to take something from every conversation with us and do something with it. Mm-hmm. And so I was prospecting a client referral yesterday and we were going back and forth about what her potential needs were going to be. And we definitely got off to a good start. Like we, you know, like the chemistry was good. I feel like I'm dating her. You know, the um, the conversation was... Better not be cheating on me, April. Yeah. The conversation was really good, but it still felt a little bit like stilted in certain places. And so I asked her if she could show me some existing materials because she was talking about certain things and we weren't using the same language. And I was like, okay, can you just show me what you mean? And so she pulled up this website and she kept telling me how she had asked her her existing web agency for a logo with a transparency to put on this brochure, but that what was coming back wasn't showing up right. And she shows me it. And I said, why did you want the transparency? And she said, well, because I didn't want it to have any sort of outline. And I was like, huh. So then she clicks onto a page of their website and she was like, I wanted it to look like this. And I was like, oh, that's not a transparency. That's reversed out. And she was like, reversed out. And I know I'm going really deep in the weeds here, right? So I I get that this, you know, but I'm going somewhere with it. And it was literally at that moment where I used a term and explained to her what it meant that it was like it changed the entire conversation. It was Mm. like I suddenly knew what I was talking about. I had taken a moment to help her with her problem. I was asking about something that really had very little to do with our conversation, but I was trying to like help her figure out what she actually needed. And she was like, okay, let me write that down. She wrote reversed out. And I was like, yes. And then take a screen grab. Do you know how to do that? And she's like, uh, so we went through the screen grab exercise. This is how you do it. Send them that and tell them you need it reversed out and send the application of where you want it. And she was like, oh, I think you just saved me so much time. But I mean, it's stuff like that, right? Yeah. Immediate impact in that conversation. And that's a tiny thing. But it it just, I mean, really, it felt like it solidified the sale for us because I took the time to do that. Well, thank you. <laughs> I haven't even talked to Anne about this one yet. We've been moving so fast, she hasn't even heard about this yet. Yeah. So. But I think that's an excellent example of how you provided immediate value. And we're going to get to this a little bit later in one of the end of trenches questions. But I think that's phenomenal about how you are showing by the way that you are engaging what you're capable of, not just giving it lip service and saying this is what we do. So I think that's really, really, really great example. So then the third sales story that we want to talk about is selling to a third party. This includes distributors, sales reps, wholesalers, or a third party site. Right now, these sales stories are a blend of the first two as you need to consider first, what's in it for the third party? And second, what is in it for who they are selling to? Okay, so first, let's talk about what's in it for the third party. Okay, so for the most, except maybe sales reps, which I will talk about next, it's about positioning your sales story for sell-through. Okay, sell-through is the biggest thing for third parties. 
Now, when you talk about third-party sites like Amazon or Etsy, for example, your sell-through story is not necessarily a story you're selling to them, but it's one of more of positioning and strategy. So, for example, it's important to know that these sites tend to promote those who help generate traffic to the site. So many times this is with pricing and deals and promotions. You have to really consider, is this something you can afford? Are you prepared to play this game? Especially on Amazon, it is absolutely brutal. So brutal. I mean, so brutal. And you, it, yeah, I, I just came and say enough about how brutal it is. <laughs> um, and so what you're going to really need to be focused on within these sales stories is actually the consumer that you're selling to. So not only do you have to position yourself on the third-party sites, but you also have to create demand with that consumer, which is through good old marketing, and April's going to get to this in a second, in order to be able to pull through and actually win there. Otherwise, you kind of get lost in the murkiness and you're going to get lost in all of the competition that is there for price and promotion, okay? Now, for a distributor or wholesaler, it's all about margin. If someone else is more productive and sell-through, you are going to lose your slot. It's really, really that simple, which means you need to be really, really thinking about the target who they are selling to with your sales story. So you can rewind this episode to the first two stories and really listen to one of those based on who your target is and how you should really think about that. Now, finally, if you're selling to a sales rep or an agent, you really need to consider what's in it for him or her, as well as what's in it for his or her clients or company. Okay, so you have to consider both. So generally, what's in it for the agent or the rep is commissions and new clients. That's how they do their business. That's the lifeblood of their business. So your sales story better be geared to how you're going to deliver that better than the competition. Yeah, and I think all of this, I mean, you said a whole lot there. Um, But I think this third-party thing is actually something that often gets ignored or maybe doesn't get the attention it needs until it's already too late. Mm-hmm. And so I think your Amazon um, example is a really good one because I think all of us have some sort of sad story, sob story, something we've heard where companies have just gotten crushed because they took for granted the fact that they were, well, they were going to be on Amazon, right? So of course right. things were going to sell beautifully. And as it turned out, they didn't think through the fact that it's real. There's really nothing in it for Amazon, given the amount of products that are on there. So to our comments about it just being brutal, it's like that's one where you have to work a hundred times as hard and think through mm-hmm. every scenario. And so I just think, you know, this is one to Anne's point of going back and listening. I think people really should listen to a couple of times as well, because it just isn't something that I think is naturally ingrained in people when they get really excited about their new ideas. Yeah. And just a little Amazon caveat because I can't help myself is please do not believe that anybody is an expert in Amazon marketing. It, <laughs> yes. It does not exist. You guys, the only people who know how to do Amazon marketing are the people who are in Amazon who in the actually know the algorithms, okay? <laughs> Otherwise, those algorithms change in order to benefit Amazon in any given moment. And if you want to know all about the buy box and how you compete in the buy box, I mean... <laughs> Go ahead and try it, and you're going to need some uh, stiff drink after that. I was just going to say, lots of wine. Yeah. Okay. So the fourth sell stories that we want to talk about is selling direct to consumer. And I'm going to let April talk this one. Yeah, because I do love my consumers, yes, as I we know. all know. So going through the structure again, this is about two things. The first one is developing your marketing strategy, and the second is identifying the right sales platform and then optimizing accordingly. You hear us talk a ton 
about marketing strategy. And really at the crux of marketing strategy is your target consumer. So you've heard us say this before many times. How can you best reach them? When should you best reach them? What is the right message? And who is telling that story? All of those components are essential to helping you develop that sales story and then those channels of choice by which to tell that story. So again, how, where they are, when is best to reach them, what is the message, who is telling it? We cannot emphasize that Mm -hmm. enough. And then with your marketing channels, you have to make sure that you're linked on the back end to an optimized selling platform. So most direct-to-consumer businesses use their website, and then they add some sort of back-on e-commerce plugin. Not many of them build from the ground up. There's plenty of plugins out there, and I'm by no means an expert, but I at least talk to our digital friends enough to know that there's enough already built that this is not an area where you should go and try and build it yourself. Um, and they're offered at different scales, too. So If it's pretty simple, there's simple plugins. If you're more complex, there's stuff like Salesforce or others where it becomes more of a management platform on the back end that helps you be able to sell effectively. Um, But whatever it is, it's important to make sure that the site is optimized for processing speed here so you have a good uh, UX or user experience because nothing is worse than when someone's ready to go and buy, make that transaction, click the button, give you their money, and they get frustrated because they can't get through the selling process. And I mean, I just had this the other day. I was trying to sign my son up for soccer. It's like I went through the whole platform, ready to go. It says, okay, insert your credit card information, and there's nowhere to insert it. And so I go all the way back, and I go all the way through again, and it's like, there's nowhere to insert it. And so I ended up having to reach out and, you know, we're like 15 emails in now back and forth of how to get Sam signed up for soccer. So there you go. A really bad example of when that goes wrong. And it really is as simple, you know, people aren't patient anymore, right? Like the faster, the better, and the expectation keeps getting faster and faster and faster. So you need to be checking regularly and really make sure that whatever system you have on the back end, those transactions can happen really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that's super important because whenever we hear somebody saying that they're just not getting the sales that they are hoping to get, but they seem to be getting a a good amount of traffic, that's the first place we tell them to look. It's usually the processing speed of your website or is something having to do with the back end um, e-com plugin that's not allowing it to facilitate and and it gets stuck. Or you have too many steps that you're trying to make the basket size too big and, and people get frustrated and they opt out. So Definitely don't overlook that. It's really super critically important. Um, And get people who know what they're doing there in order to do that for you. Um, That's a place where it's not, doesn't, pay to be um, be cheap on. And then make sure you're also monitoring your analytics and your KPIs because that's the way you're going to know if your sales story is actually working in order to get the leads you want and then convert them. So exactly. and if you're not, then you need to go back and diagnose. Yep. All right. So just to summarize a bit here as the key theme for each sales story, okay? So the first sales story is securing space on the shelf or on the floor of a retailer. So you'll need to make sure your sales story considers your consumer as a shopper and the needs of the retailer. If you're selling services and products B2B, you need to consider your credibility and reputation, as well as how you're going to impact your clients' lives for the better. If you're selling to a third party, you need to make sure your sales story is a blend of first two, which is what's in it for the third party, or what's in it for who they are selling to. 
all right? And if you're selling direct to consumer, that's all about developing your marketing strategy and identifying the right sales platform and optimizing accordingly. Are you craving a deeper dive immersion into the topics on our podcast? Then you will appreciate our virtual consultancy. Located on the shop page of our website, forthright-people.com, you can now download our digital coaching modules on vigilant leadership, culture building, and social strategy. For the cost of a book, you will get diagnostic tools and exercises to assess your current state and development tools to quickly and intentionally improve your proficiency. These are quick yet effective ways to improve your marketing savvy today. Check it out and let us know other topics you would like us to go deep on. All right. With that, we're going to head into our in the trenches questions where we're going to go into these in a lot more detail. Use some industry examples, but these should have broad application for all of you guys so you could take that immediate action that April was talking about before. All right. So our first in the trenches question, how important are testimonials and sales stories? April. Okay. So testimonials are helpful support, but as we talked about earlier, they're actually not what closes potential customers, retailers, or clients. And that's because of a couple things. One, they're arbitrary and in isolation because nobody knows that person. And number two, because they don't know them, they can't vouch for the credibility. So said another way, a client could have only one super satisfied customer and put Mm -hmm. them on as the testimonial, but then there's a hundred other bad experiences right behind it. So it just, there's a time and a place for testimonials, certainly, but it's not at that point where you want people to start considering you. So what we would say is, Again, those quantifiable metrics are so important. So if you could instead say 95% of your new clients, consumers, customers, whatever the audience is, have come from referrals, then that adds a level of authority to how successful you are by giving that metric. And so for consumers, you know, the other thing is that ratings and reviews are more compelling as well because they're also quantifiable. So then they might dig into the comments of, okay, well, what's the nitty gritty detail? But Mm -hmm. first they want to see, like, for example, I mean, we do this all the time when we do Airbnb or or Verbo. You know, I go first and I look at, you know, what number of stars or, you know, how good are the ratings overall? And, And then I dig into things like, okay, what are the specific comments? And But if they don't have a good rating to begin with, then they're just out at the very beginning. So we would say try to quantify your testimonials into stats. It allows for more consistency. It builds your credibility. It builds your reputation. And it's also really a quick hit. It can have impact and be very clear very, very quickly so people can kind of start checking the box on what they're looking for versus going to that next level of digging into the experience itself. Yeah, I think that's really important because a lot of people will like just load, especially like their website page, for example, with just like one off testimonials. And I'm like, I don't know who Sarah B is. I'm like, I don't even know who Sarah B is from like such and such company. But it does mean something to me if you tell me like, again, like 95% of your referrals uh, or 95% of your business is coming from referrals. That makes me think, hey, people liked you well enough that they're willing to hire you again yeah. Um, yeah. or willing to like Recommend. give you, you know, your name to somebody else and then they want to hire you. I mean, so that speaks a whole lot more to the impact that you're going to deliver and the quality of the product or service that you're going to deliver. So I, I think that is a really good thing to consider. So the second in the trenches question, is there a process that will help me uncover the emotional impact that will benefit my clients' lives? And 
we think the best way to really help you guys here versus going through a really long process is to load a deep dive worksheet um, onto the, the our website, so forthright-people.com under the worksheets tab. We do have a proven eight-step process for thinking through this. It's it, we've used it all throughout all of our both of our careers, you know, either directly or indirectly, mm-hmm. um, both in within the client side and in the corporate our corporate lives. So this does work, and it and this will help you guys think through the questions to ask and how to process that. And if you want to even go in more depth, you can buy my book on Amazon, The Super Highway of Relevancy: Getting More People to Choose Your Brand More Often and Definitely. That will give you a little bit more context around the steps if you need that level of depth. But I'll tell you that this process always starts in the same place, and it's what we've already talked about. So we're going to sound like a broken record, but hear us when we say that the very first thing you need to do is to identify your consumer, your mm-hmm. customer, your client's tension or angst are having in your category at that moment and the emotional impact it's having on them, and then how are you going to solve for that uniquely and how that's going to improve their lives, okay? That is what you sell. So think about that. Start with that. And this is the same no matter who you're pitching to. So you just put it in a different context. You put it in their context. So that is how you get started. But definitely check out that worksheet for the more step-by-step process. Yeah. And I would say on the agency side, we always had so much success with this because we would get points automatically for any sort of information about the customer, the consumer, whatever you want to you know, whatever the audience is. But then because we were the creative agency, we could come up with some really cool ways to solve for that. And especially in pitching situations, right? You don't have to deal with budgets or restraints or politics or who has approvals or whatever. And so it was just such an easy get to be able to quickly show we totally understand who you were targeting. And it was it would be so great. You'd see the heads nodding when you'd provide mm-hmm, whatever that mm-hmm. insight is. And then we'd be like, and then look at how we solved it. And it would always be so shiny and it was just like they would just be like like eating out of your hand by the end of the presentation I mean those are the most fun ones of course but I mean just exemplifying the point of really making sure that you can provide that emotional impact and then show how you're going to be able to change lives as a result yeah and I think you know what I always said um within the the P&G walls was that I had a good agency if I could consider them an extension of myself yeah so just indirectly the point of being able to really understand the consumer and the business in order to be able to help to provide extension of work capability. All that was just like so supremely helpful yep. that, um, yes, I can imagine you did get a ton of smiles when you were able to nail that. Yeah, for sure. All right. Our next into trenches question. We have our sales story ready, but we're having trouble getting to the right people. How do we even get their attention? April, are they supposed to troll it on LinkedIn? <laughs> I'm really actually surprised you gave me this one because you love this I topic. Know, so I know, I know, I know, I know. But I figured they're probably tired of hearing about it from me. So I'm going to let right, you I'll, take I'll, your I'll take. give my answer. <laughs> so this this first part I'm going to give is definitely Anne, which is she gets so annoyed when people say they can't find people because she's like, Anyone is findable through the company directly. You might actually have to pick up the phone and make a phone call, but you actually (laughs) can find people that way. So I'll start there. 
But I mean, again, we've made previous comments in this episode about digitally and, and how you show up. You know, it, there's LinkedIn searches, there's company websites, you know, you might be able to find someone who knows someone who knows someone on mm-hmm. those sites, right? And be able to connect that way. You just have to be resourceful and spend the time and not just throw up your hands and be like, well, I can't find the right person. So I'm quitting after two seconds of looking for it. Mm-hmm. There is always a way. And then when you find the right person, especially if it's taken you some time, don't just phone it in. You have to have a compelling elevator pitch that's more about them than you. And we made that point just now, right? Speaking directly to pain points for potential clients and then giving your solution versus talking all about yourself, that is the right way to do it. And so with an elevator pitch, it's smart because it's quick and concise and you want it to be that way, but it also very then quickly demonstrates your understanding. So And it leaves something to be desired as well. So that's the other piece of this is you offer immediate value, but you don't want to give it all away right off the bat. Mm -hmm. So it's enough that you understand they're intrigued by it, but you're not just handing over the solution without actually the benefit of getting paid for it, having that working relationship, whatever. So it looks something like this. I was on your Facebook page and saw your engagements consistently the same, but I think it should be a lot more. So your posts that are all about social causes are very compelling, but then not enough people are seeing them. I specialize in helping businesses gain two to three times more reach just by tweaking the content and then promoting it a certain way. Do you want to know more? Generic example, we know that, but it covered exactly what we're talking about. So It shows that you went on their site. You very specifically and smartly talk about the fact that you know they do social causes, right? So something that quickly they can identify with. And then giving them this sort of nugget of I know ways to actually make your metrics go up, which everybody's trying to do on social these days, both from a likes and then an engagement perspective, piques their interest and leaves them wanting something more. But the other side, and this is, again, why I thought Anne was going to take this one, but do not just generically create something. Actually go and do that work. Don't yes. give the same elevator pitch to everyone. Make sure that you credibly looked at their whatever site, social, whatever, and that this is a customized solution. It's okay if you have a framework for how you do elevator speeches. Nothing wrong with that. So if you want to you know, do it in like a, here's what I know about you. Here's a pain point I see. Here's how I might solve it. Great. But those should be different every single time. Mm -hmm. And also make sure that you aren't trying to pitch someone on something that they already do because that happens to us very frequently, right? (sighs) I had someone reach out about doing websites the other day and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's like right on our site that we do websites, right? So just make sure that you're not causing, well, in that instance, way more harm than good, but that if you get to the right person, you're not just throwing it away by then giving something gen- generic in response to it. Um, and all of that being said, you know, anyone can go and do cursory glances or audits of social or go walk the stores still and, and see what's out there and give feedback that way. But the more research you can do, to help inform decisions, the better. Um, you know, we. I'm scratching my head. You can't see me. But <laughs> when we had to work at, uh, on Proctor Business, I always got irritated with some of this when we would do these studies that would, you know, last six months. And I'd be like, well, great. Now we have an answer that was applicable six months ago. Not what we're talking about here. But the point is to actually, if you have the money to invest on in research, definitely do it, even if it's money out of your pocket. If it's a big client and a big opportunity that you actually really want. Um, you know, I had someone recently give the example of doing a, a whole case study and paying for research in order to be able to get a job. 
right? I think that was Mark actually was Mark, on yeah. our on our episode. So, um, but yeah, just the point is that make sure that you do the right amount of research and the more opportunity you have for it, the better and always be keeping up on that because to my previous example I just gave about the six-month study, that's no longer relevant by the time we get to the end of it, right? So you need to be keeping that pulse and making sure that you are on track and continuing to track with whoever the target is. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I mean, and I think if I was going to sum it all up into um, one pithy statement, I would think it's quality over quantity. And, you know, I I think we're seeing a lot of tendency for people just to try to like mass, like reach everybody, especially on LinkedIn. And it's and it's so clear that people haven't done their appropriate research and really to understand like what your needs are. They're just hoping to kind of like get you to react somehow or bait and switch you, which has happened as well. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you from being in the walls of P&G and this one seems to be a really popular one that I hear a lot of people talk about. Um, Actually, I I listened to somebody talk about it on uh, Clubhouse was um, find out who the brand managers are and who the marketing directors are and then email them. And I'm like, why would you do that? Because mm-hmm. P&G has agencies of record. They have AORs. Yep. The brand managers, the marketing directors are not making the calls <laughs> on on the marketing agencies. The marketing agencies are making the calls on all the marketing tactics that we're doing and what channels we're operating against and stuff like that. The best you can hope for is that that person is going to pass along your pitch. Mm-hmm. And that means your pitch better be really good and better have that value and that intrigue that says, hey, well, this is not mine, but maybe I'll pass this along to my agency to vet, you know, and then, you know, they'll, my agency will vet if they're interested, they're going to get a hold of you on that, on, on my behalf. Better yet, you can go and pitch the AORs directly because then you're able to actually maybe have more than one client that you could pitch your business to. So you really need to consider what that, how that business operates in terms of decision-making and in terms of the service or the product that you're offering. So you are actually like even in the right sphere mm-hmm. of, of influence. And that you can do just by asking a couple people, doing a little bit of research, like even just even if you just looked at the PR that was yeah. like generated, it always generally mentions the agencies that are responsible for the work. I mean, it's all findable. Like you said at the very beginning, it's all findable. You just have to be a little bit strategic about how you go about finding it. All right. So our fourth um, in the trenches question, do you have suggestions for how to get on shelf at big box retailers? All right, we get asked this question a ton. And luckily, me and April have a lot of experience on this one. Mm-hmm. So this is where our big brand experience comes in really handy. So I'm going to go through a lot of points here, you guys, but we want to make this super comprehensive. I'm, April will jump in, I'm sure. So this one is just so critically like important, and we want to make sure that you guys have all the right perspective for this. So first, you need packaging that will stop, hold, and close your consumer, okay? This means designing against all the brand principles we talk at length. Go back and listen to any of the other podcasts. We always mention how important it is to have a visual and verbal toolkit and how important it is for all of these elements to be consistent across your your packaging and your marketing materials. Yep. But it also means you need to design for the shelf in mind, which means you need to understand the height and shelving requirements that your retailer or your prospective retailer has. So in general, the retailer want to minimize your facing. And your facing is what shows towards the consumer, right? It's your shelf space. And they do this in order to fit more products on shelf. More products they have on shelf, the more they can sell. 
So you really need to optimize accordingly to that shelf space that you think you're going to get, or you're going to be really ready to justify why you need more. And you also need to make sure that your package stands or hangs securely and neatly. Nothing is worse than when you put your package on the shelf and it keeps falling over. Mm -hmm. Because you know what's going to happen? They're going to take your product off the shelf because it's too annoying to have to shelf, okay? Or if you're hanging on some sort of hook and it's all like, you know, kind of cascaded up because it's not in the package very well and it doesn't like stack nicely into um, the, the shelf set that it's in. And we talked about this a ton at the at the agencies because, you know, the the desire, right, when you're designing something is to make it super cool or come out with a brand new package or whatever. And so a lot of times we'd have to have conversations about designing for like the least common denominator, right? So it would mm-hmm. be like, all right, that's great, but if you're someone who's behind stocking the shelves or whatever, you have to make sure that it's something you can quickly put there, right? Or the desire might be to like create a beautiful mural with all the packages on the shelf, right? And it's like until a 16-year-old comes in and exactly. just shoves everything on there. Exactly. And so we always would talk about, you know, design is super important. Yes, but really in the packaging space, that functionality of being able to sit or hang or whatever really, really easy is a lot of times more important. Yeah, absolutely agree. And if you design it in from the get-go, you're going to save yourself a lot of trouble. The next thing you need to consider is claims, stats, data, because these are important as differentiator and credibility builders, Okay. So claims are often product performance or maybe even impact related, like we've talked about before, and are especially powerful if it's versus competition. And in order to really demonstrate this, demos, they are really, really compelling. You do this a lot at P&G is being able to be able to demonstrate the actual product performance or the actual impact that the product is going to have. That helps to reinforce the claims, make sure that they know that this is real and this is really going to perform the way that you guys intended to. Stats are also powerful when framed up, like as we discussed in testimonials. So this can be in terms of things like preference, so repeat, change in shopping behavior, especially if it increases frequency. So like if you like we talked about, like you have a percent repeat as a result of the the, the claims or, or any kind of uh, product performance benefit. OK, so make sure you have these stats also very well uh, articulated in, in how and make them sure they're tight and make sure they have a really good base size to instill confidence that this is in fact true. Nothing is worse than when you get there and you say, yeah, we tested with 10 people and you know 90% like it. It's like, well, that's great. Nine out of 10. All right. Well, how does that extrapolate to thousands and hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of people? Okay. Also know your data in terms of your numbers. This is your sales, your profit, your margins, your cost of goods. You need to know them inside and out, and you need to know them with respect to your category. It's really critically important. If you don't know your numbers, you're not even going to get a a legitimate conversation with these guys. Yeah, and I would also say here, be choiceful. Um, I'm going to pick on P&G again, but one of the things that they love to do is, you know, muck up that package with tons and tons of this information. And I'm not saying that actually it needs to all go away, right? Like designers, of course, they they want the intent to be there and the beauty of what was created without any of that stuff. I sit somewhere in the middle. But what I do hate is when a design is executed so well with the right intention on the shelf Mm -hmm. and with the package that's actually going to function there. And then all of a sudden, it's like a puzzle where you're trying to fit all these disclaimers and all these claims and all these stats and all this data. It's like, 
no one's going to actually read all of that. You're going to do yourself harm because people aren't going to see the package stand out for the brand that it is. And at the end of the day, nobody cares about that much data, right? So I would just say, make sure you find the balance. Yes, I completely agree that this stuff is important, but there's also a point where it gets to be just way too much. Yeah, I definitely think editing is a really good exercise um, because you're right, because everybody has a tendency to just want to load as much as possible. Yeah. But then you need to consider, again, back to the point we we're making before, your consumer's a shopper and what your your the shopper's actually going to be looking for yes. in terms of closing the sale. And those are the things that you want to make sure that you um, include in your sales story. So all these things go in your sales story for sure. But mm -hmm. then you can edit them out and you can decide... I'm going to have this claim at point of sale. I'm going to have these claims on the package. Exactly. You know, and you can then edit it down in order to make sure you're telling a complete story um, in the things that the the, the shopper is going to see or the customer is going to see, but as well as making sure that you, you know, you got to edit and, and pick what's important for your retailer too. Don't give them a laundry list of, of all these things. Make sure that what you're telling is going to create that sales story that is going to be compelling to them. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, so all of this stuff is really, really important and really to demonstrate that you've kind of tapped into that emotional connection. But if you can, too, some of the softer things also help. Like in order to bring this to life, you might want to show them how um, your your consumers are engaging on social and what they're or what mm -hmm. they are saying. You might want to show them some UGC. You might want to give the retailers samples to try so they can get the experience themselves. Just find a way to demonstrate just how popular your your product is going to be because that is going to demonstrate to the retailer that people are going to be interested in the product and they're going to want to come and they're going to be asking for it. It's the same with your your marketing materials. They always love to see the fact that you are guys are investing in promoting the product with your consumers, right? Or with stakeholders or whatever is going to be critical in order to make your product big. Because when they think that people are going to be, again, coming and asking for it, they're more inclined to shelve it, okay? So create those points and show them you know, these these more softer things so that they can see that you are invested in this and that people are actually responding to it. And then there's a the technical negotiation. So, you know, every retailer <laughs> is different on this. And this, this is, is so fun. <laughs> this is not, yeah, this is not a lesson in, in retailers. Let me just tell you that. But we always find it um, helpful if we kind of give like a little bit of tidbit of information based on an insider knowledge about how some of these retailers tend to operate. So we'll just do that for you guys. So, for example, <laughs> You know, Walmart, I mean, you guys can probably guess Walmart's all about lowest prices. So what they're going to be looking for is big margins. They're going to want to make sure that there's space mm -hmm. and you're going to want to make sure that there's space so that if they take those prices down, they're going to make money and they're going to have that benefit of being quote unquote lowest price. But you're got to still be able to make money, too. So you need to make sure that you're going to have those margins that are going to accommodate that. And then also make sure that you're getting value back on that. So make sure, you know, you're getting some sort of form of display, special features. See if you can negotiate those things in, um, as well as being able to offer incentives to them for um, for margin or price. Yeah, end caps were always super popular. Yeah, absolutely. Feature absolutely. yourself there. Target, okay, that's another retailer that is a very popular one. Um, they like products that appeal to the savvy shoppers. That's kind of how me and April refer to them. Um, and so they appreciate unique SKUs, like we talked about before. By the way, electronic stores, like your Best Buys and all that, they also like unique SKUs too. That's why mm -hmm. you can't price compare between stores. That's why they promote. If you can find it someplace lower, then we'll give you that price plus some off. You'll never find any place lower. You know why? Because it doesn't exist anyplace else. So yep. 
That's a little secret. Okay. Game in the system. Yeah, we're going to probably get egged. My house is going to get egged. <laughs> okay, but anyway, um, they're also big on things like capsule collections. Like, you know, they've had um, all kinds of designers who've come in and did these special capsule collections. So that's really popular. They also love PR and influencer coverage. So anything that you do that's going to drum up that. I didn't even think they have target influencers. And they used to, at least when I was at P&G. That is going to be what is going to look like something that they're going to be interested in. Uh, drug is all about convenience. They charge premium prices and it hopes you're going to buy the products there on a one-stop trip when you're picking up either your your um, prescriptions yep. or your pictures. But shelf space is super limited, so they only take smaller sizes and they give less facings. And here, store brands are super prevalent. They are in grocery too, which we're going to get in a second. So you really need to keep up with that and make sure that you are differentiating from store brands as well as making sure you have offerings that are in smaller sizes for those smaller facings. Grocery is all about turns on shelf. They stock what sells and what brings people in the store. They also appreciate promos and discounts so they can be competitive with Walmart. So you need to consider that. And even specialty grocery is similar, but they aren't as sensitive on price. So you you get a little bit of latitude there. Yeah. And I think just to pause for a minute and talk about um, store brands or private labels, what Mm -hmm. we called them when we were working on them all the time. Um, there really was a significant rise in them, I guess you call it about eight to 10 years ago. And the secret's out, right? That they do hold up just as well in many mm-hmm. cases as those bigger brands. And they've also invested to look like those bigger brands or to go as far like Kroger and develop their own look and feel that doesn't feel like private label anymore. So a little bit of a tangent there, but I think it is just Mm -hmm. so important to think about the fact that you're not only competing to get the retailer's attention, but you're competing with the retailer too in a lot of cases. So just a side note there. We used to have that discussion when we were going in and and having those sales conversations with um, these stores because we're like, we're giving them insight into Uh what we're going to be delivering, which makes it easier for them to fast follow. So yeah, I mean, your your retailers are now your competition too. So that's a really good point. And our third and final segment is usually a real world example of a brand that's doing this well or not well, but it's hard to decipher (laughs) because this happens very internally to businesses. Mm -hmm. So instead, we're going to flip it. We're actually going to give you guys a homework assignment so you can answer this for your own business. So Put yourself in the position of your buyer, whoever that is. If it's a client, a consumer, a customer, a retailer, just put yourself in their shoes and ask yourself, if I was them, what would I need to be told and by whom to convince me to buy from this business and this business being your business? Now, this will force you to consider your landscape as well as how sufficient your sales story really is and really start making that much tighter and much more compelling. We actually had a client put that question back to us. Yeah, we did. Anne had a really good answer. It was in the real estate uh, space, which, of course, is near and dear to her. So it was probably not as hard as he thought it was going to be. But (laughs) just interesting anecdote that that actually was posed back to us. And he did not know (laughs) anything about this episode. (laughs) So that might or might not have come from that, you know, that homework. Inspiration everywhere, you know. Yeah. All right. So let's just summarize this up a bit because we gave you a lot. And this is probably one, like April said, you're going to have to go listen to a couple of times. But. Uh, We wanted to make sure that we were very comprehensive when we talked about this so you could take action immediately. So the key themes for each sales story. If you're securing space on the shelf or on the floor of a retailer, your sales story needs to consider your consumer as a shopper, the needs of the retailer. 
If you're selling services and products B2B, your sales story needs to consider your credibility and reputation. How are you going to impact your clients' lives for the better? If you're selling to a third party, like a distributor, a sales rep, a wholesaler, a third-party site, you need to consider what's in it for the third party and what is in it for who they are selling to. And then if you're selling direct to consumer, it's all about developing your marketing strategy and identifying the right sales platform and optimizing accordingly. And with that, we'll say go exercise your marketing smarts. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. Mention you heard about us here and we will give you a free 30-minute consultation. You can also share any topics you want us to cover which helps us give real-world support to our listeners in real time. And if you learned something impactful, please share with a friend and don't forget to leave a rating and review on your favorite platform. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.